Amen. Well, at the turn of a new year, either on the last Sunday of the month or the first Sunday of the new year, we have historically uh, taken a moment to preach on a passage of scripture to kind of set our focus as a church for the new year, and that's what I hope to do this morning. Last year, if you recall, uh, I preached on Mary and Martha and the importance of sitting at the feet of Christ, and so our 2019 focus was intended to orient us around being with Jesus and sitting with Jesus and focusing on Jesus and specifically time with him, both personally and publicly, together as a church. And this morning, what I want to talk about is a culture of discipleship. And um, I want to explain what that means and what the vision of that is as we move through the sermon text this morning. We're not going to be speaking on any one particular passage. We're going to be hopping around quite a bit this morning. Uh, If you're a guest with us for the holidays, thanks for coming in. Perhaps you're with family. We hope this will give you a window into the heart of our church and what we're about and hope that you'll pray for us um, if you won't be with us and are just here visiting family or friends. Um, But we hope you'll pray for us in the new year that the Lord would equip us in these sorts of ways this morning. And uh, for all of us uh, regular Heritage members, I hope we'll be instructed and helped and encouraged. And I want you to hear up front, sometimes we hear sermons, you know, on the beginning of the new year, the end of the old year, and we think, you know, this is some deep-seated problem that the pastors are trying to solve or something like that. That's not it at all. Okay, this, it's sometimes hard to hear sermons like this that are more vision-oriented and, and think it's an all-or-nothing. Like, we have none of this, and we need to grow in all of this. Actually, we have a lot praise God, of what we're going to talk about this morning already in our church. And so this is more of a sermon that that Peter would come along, the Apostle Peter, and say, hey, this is to stir you up by way of reminder. This is to encourage you to continue to press on. Or like the Apostle Paul would say, he would say, I, I, want to, I want to encourage you to excel still more in this. And so don't hear this sermon as this is a, we don't have any of this and we hope to have all of this by the end of 2020. That won't happen. This sermon's about Christian maturity and we know that's a lifetime process. So my hope is that we'll, this will just be an encouragement and an incentive, put some fuel in the tank and encourage us to press toward God's vision for us as a church, which is really the vision that he has for every church. Nothing unique about what I'm going to say this morning. It's God's desire for all of his churches and we're one of them. So let's Let's pray once again, ask God's blessing, and then we'll dive into our topic this morning. Father, thank you for the time together this morning to preach from your word on what the church is and what the church is called to be in its heart as a spiritual community of people who exist to help one another grow in Christ. So equip us um, according, through your word this morning by your spirit for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Three questions we're going to consider this morning as we dive into this topic on a culture of discipleship. Number one, who is a disciple? Number two, what is discipleship? And number three, what's a culture of discipleship? So we'll spend our last time, most of our time, on the second and third points this morning. First of all, who is a disciple? Just a quick reminder, if we're going to talk about a culture of discipleship, we have to be reminded of what, who a disciple is, right? Because that's what we're after. We're after growing disciples. So who is a disciple? Well, a disciple, quite simply, and you need to have this definition if you don't have this definition already, because it is the main term that Jesus uses to describe his followers. It's not Christians. It's not churchgoers. It's disciples. So disciple is the main term that we use and we should adopt in describing ourselves, and a discipler is a follower of Jesus, someone who follows Jesus. So disciple Discipleship, as we'll look at in a few minutes, means to follow Jesus. But when you become a disciple, our allegiance 
gets radically reoriented around the person, people, and purposes of Jesus. So to become a disciple and to be a disciple means that our lives are oriented around the person of Jesus, the people of Jesus, and the purposes of Jesus. That is what a disciple is. That is who a disciple is. We leave what we used to be centered around, and now we center our lives around the person, the people, and the purposes of Christ. When we encounter Jesus, we meet a man who calls his followers to come and die. Remember that's in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, if anyone would follow me, let him die. Let him come, take up his cross, and follow me. That is, die to his self-centeredness and pursue a life of Christ-centeredness, which means being oriented around the person of Christ, the people of Christ, and the purposes of Christ. And he calls us to follow him and grow and learn from him. Matthew 11, remember Jesus says, Come all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, that is, learn from me. Put my yoke on your shoulders and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. It doesn't matter whether we're smart or less than smart, rich or poor, young or old, Asian, African, or American, the only requirement to become a disciple is to repent of rebelling against our Creator and cling to Him through faith alone. If we do this, we're promised forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation with God. So I don't assume that uh, all of us in this room are disciples yet, but I want to tell you that you can become one and you must become one. That is, you must become a follower of Jesus. You must take upon yourself the forgiveness of Christ offered to you through repentance and faith in Him. And then your life begins to get oriented around His person, His people, and His purposes. Jesus calls us to come and die so that we might live, truly live. And discipleship is the same for everybody. There's not two classes of disciples, right? There's not those who abandon their lives to Christ and to His service and those who don't. Jesus doesn't have a category for those kind of followers, even though historically in the last century the American church has. Some suggest that disciples are the super-Christians who are just getting it done for Jesus, while Christians are just normal believers. But Scripture offers no support for this distinction. Now, no, that doesn't mean that all disciples are called to lay their lives down on the foreign mission field. But all disciples are required to center their lives on the purpose, people, and purposes of Jesus. And for some of those disciples, that will mean the foreign mission field. But for obviously the vast majority of us, that means that we will orient our lives locally in a body of believers, in a community, in a family around the person, people, and purposes of Jesus. But make no mistake, that's not a super Christian. That's a Christian. Matthew 10.38 Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. See, Jesus doesn't have a category for an uncross-bearing disciple. If you're not bearing your cross currently, you're not worthy of him, which means you're not a disciple. Luke chapter 9, 57 through 62, Jesus said, or Luke comments on, a, on an occasion where Jesus was interacting with a number of people. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Sounds like he's signing up for discipleship. What does Jesus say? Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. 
He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, well, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. See, Jesus is almost trying to talk people out of being his disciples. Because being a, discipleship, being a disciple requires death to self. And what Jesus is calling for is that very death. And he knows it's not a popular call. John chapter 10, verse 27, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. So who are Jesus' sheep? Who are his disciples? Who are his followers? Well, they are those who listen to his voice, yes. And who know him, yes. But who follow him, yes. John chapter 12, verse 25 and 26, Anyone who loves their life will lose it while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. So there is no service of Jesus without following of Jesus. Those things go together. So we're either following Jesus or, or we aren't. There isn't a middle ground. Now, imperfectly, we are following him for sure, but truly and authentically and growingly following him is a must. Matthew 12, verse 30, Jesus makes this clear. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So Jesus doesn't have a category for any other disciple than a person who follows him, because that's the only kind of disciples there are. That's how you identify a disciple, is a follower of Jesus. And what I mean by that is someone who has oriented their lives, I think it's the fifth time I've said this, around the person, people, and purposes of Christ. That is a disciple, orienting their life, oriented our lives around Jesus as our Savior and Lord, around the people, that is the church, and around the purposes, which is the growth of the body of Christ and the expansion of the body of Christ in the world through making and maturing disciples. Tony Payne, author and pastor, says the following, the radicalism of this demand, that is the demand to come and follow me, often feels a world away from the ordinariness of our normal Christian habits and customs. We go to church, sing a few songs, try to concentrate on the prayers, and hear a sermon. We chat with people afterwards and then go home for a normal week of work or study or whatever else we do in time to come again next week. We might read our Bible and pray during the week. We may even attend a small group. But would someone observing from outside say, look, there is someone who has abandoned his life to Jesus Christ and his mission? See, that's the question. It's, now, are any of those other things that I read bad? No, they're all essential. We gather weekly with the church, we sing, we pray, we hear sermons, we chat, we fellowship with each other. All that's essential. It's not meant to undermine any of that. But if that's where it stops, that's not discipleship. That's not being a disciple. Being a disciple is someone who has abandoned their lives to Jesus Christ and his mission, which is what we're going to talk about for the rest of the sermon. What is Jesus' mission? Well, Jesus' mission is clear in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where we are to go and make disciples and teach them, mature them. So Jesus' mission, Jesus' heart, is to make and mature disciples, which means that to center our lives on the purposes of Jesus is to make that our heart too that our life, that the goal of our lives is to whatever we're doing, whether in our families or in our workplaces or in our church lives or in our other community involvement, whatever that is, 
at the center of it all, at the heart of it all, driving everything else as the chief end of our lives is to glorify God by making and maturing disciples. We want to be a part of that great mission of Jesus. So that's what, who a disciple is, a follower of Jesus who has abandoned their lives to his person, his people, and his purposes. Now, secondly, what is discipling or discipleship, we might say? Well, discipling is intentionally helping others follow Jesus. That's what discipling is. It's helping others follow Jesus. Just as a disciple is someone who follows Jesus themselves, so discipling is helping other people do that, whether starting that relationship or continuing in that relationship. And as we follow our Lord, we quickly learn that part of imitation is replication. Having a personal relationship with Jesus is magnificent, but it is incomplete and I would say insufficient if it ends with us. Part of being his follower is to intentionally help others learn from him and become more like him. As Mark Dever famously says, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., he says, quote, If you aren't helping other people follow Jesus... I don't know what you mean when you say you're following Jesus. Let me read that quote again. If you aren't helping other people follow Jesus, I don't know what you mean when you say you're following Jesus. How can he say that? Because imitation is replication. If we are going to follow Jesus, we have to help other people follow Jesus because that's what it means to follow Jesus. Does that make sense? To follow Jesus is not a person. It's certainly a personal thing, but it's not a private thing. It's a personal thing that bleeds into interpersonal things. To be his follower is to help others follow him. You can't follow Jesus unless you're helping other people follow Jesus. That's the point. To be a disciple is to be someone who invests in disciples and cares about people becoming and growing as disciples. In other words, to be a disciple is to be a disciple maker. Came across a quote by Charles Spurgeon yesterday, and it wasn't in the sermon, but when you read a Spurgeon quote on a Saturday, chances are it gets in a sermon somehow, because he's just always that good. Here's what Spurgeon says, my brethren, you must not live to yourselves. The accumulation of money, the bringing up of your children, the building of houses, the earning of your daily bread, all this you may do, but there must be a greater object than this if you are to be Christ-like, as you should be, since you are bought with Jesus' blood. Begin to live for others. Make it apparent unto all men that you are not yourselves the end, all and be all of all your own existence, but that you are spending and being spent, that through the good you do to men, God may be glorified and Christ may be in you, in his, Christ may see in you his own image and be satisfied. End quote. So that's all that I'm saying this morning. That's what Spurgeon said. He said, following Christ means helping other people follow Christ. It, it doesn't, to be truly Christ-like is to be concerned to do good to his people and to help them to grow, to spend and be spent for others' sake. So what I want to do now is get to the Bible. 
we're going to do a, a little bit of a New Testament survey, so we're going to be skipping around. I'm going to start in Matthew, and we're going to end in Hebrews. So we're going to, so if you land in Matthew 4, we're just going to march book by, not really book by book, but turning to several passages and making application to this. Because I want this, I don't just want this to be a nice slogan. Yes, to follow Jesus means to help other people follow Jesus. I want that to become a biblical conviction in your heart. And the only way we get there is by seeing it in the Bible. Right, So we're going to do that. We're going to spend some time looking at various passages of Scripture that illustrate that to follow Jesus means to help other people follow Jesus. In other words, to be a disciple, we need to be discipling. So let's look at Matthew chapter 4, first of all. Matthew chapter 4. The verses will be on the screen behind us, but I'd like you to see them in your own copy of the Scriptures as, as well, if you can. So uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, is where we'll begin. This is Jesus' call of his first disciples. We'll start in verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So you see what's going on there. He said, there's a, there's a call, come follow me. There's a process, I'm going to make you, and there's a product, fishers of men. So if you're going to follow me, I'm going to lead you to help other people follow me. You got that? So that's Matthew 4:19. Come follow me and I'm going to make you something. If you truly follow me, this is what you're going to be made into. You're going to be made into someone who fishes for people. That is who relationally pursues them for Christ's sake. So that's Matthew 4:19. Look at the Gospel of Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 and verse 40. Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. What did Jesus spend his life doing? Discipling. Discipling. And so he says that a disciple is not above his teacher, which means if we're his disciple, we're not above what he did. We do what he did. He says, in fact, that when we're fully trained, we're like our master. So to, be, so to be mature has nothing to do with the span of time you've been in Christ. It has nothing to do with the years you've been involved in a church. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with discipling. It has everything to do with being fully trained to be like Jesus. That is to be concerned about the spiritual welfare of others. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 underscores this as well. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. By this we know... What are his commandments? Well, it, it includes lots of things, but it at least includes this. Come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we've already emphasized it, but we'll, but we'll read it again. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. Behold, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. So Jesus kind of sandwiches this command in, in, in two promises. I've been given all authority. I'm with you. Go do this. Make disciples and then mature them by teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Let's go to the book of Romans. Let's get into the Apostle Paul and his instruction following Jesus. You know, a lot of, a lot of liberal scholars will want to pit 
Paul against Jesus and say they taught different things and they emphasized different messages. And friends, when we read the scriptures, that's just not the case. They overlap a lot. And in fact, Paul said that his goal was to imitate Christ and he called people to imitate him as he imitated Christ. So it wasn't, it wasn't in any way trying to separate the two. Romans chapter 15, verse 14. Look at what Paul writes here to the church at Rome. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Do you love that? That's, that's what Paul says to the church at Rome, and I, I'm quite confident that all of our pastors could say the same thing about you. That when we look at you, we are satisfied about you, that you yourselves are full of goodness. You know, sometimes we talk about ourselves as nothing but hell-deserving, wretched sinners who are dirty and filthy. That's what we were. But you know, there, the Bible says you're full of goodness if you're a Christian. You should call yourself what the Bible calls yourself and not dismantle the work of Christ in your life by negative self-talk. You should tell yourself, not on the basis of self-esteem stuff, but on the basis of Scripture. You know what? By God's grace, I'm full of goodness because I have a good spirit living in my life I have a good Savior who's redeemed me and cleansed me from my sins, and I have a good inheritance awaiting me. And so we need to say, I'm full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Now, that doesn't mean you know everything. Paul wrote a whole letter here to Romans, uh, uh, to, to Roman Christians who didn't know everything. He just wrote 14 chapters of stuff, of doctrine, about who Christ is, what he did, how he saved you, what that means for your life. But then at the end of the letter, he says, hey, you're filled with all knowledge. You're able to do this. You're able to do what I did for each other. You're able to instruct one another. You're not reliant upon me as an apostle to teach you everything. You're able to instruct one another. That's the apostle's goal. It wasn't, it wasn't that he, as the apostle, would come and teach them everything and they would just be receivers. No, but that he would teach them they would receive, and then they would use that with each other. They would use it to instruct one another. The Bible gives all of us, as God's people, the responsibility of building up and encouraging one another in the faith. That's our responsibility collectively as the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4. Turn with me there. We read it. Eric read it for us. But we're just going to reference a few of those verses in Ephesians 4. The first part underscores the importance of unity in the body. And Paul describes how that unity is largely maintained. That unity is maintained when all Christians are working toward the maturity of the body. You know what causes church divisions and splits? Lots of things. But one of them is, is the Christians not doing the work of the ministry. That's one of the responsibilities. And Paul says that the, the way we maintain the unity in the faith is not just by bearing with one another in humility and gentleness, absolutely, and being patient with one another, absolutely, but also working toward the same mission together, which is helping the body grow. So look at verses 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So what builds the body? What builds the body? Love. And what, where does that love come from? Mutual love of Christians for one another, speaking the truth to each other. 
That is what causes the body to grow in love. And that's what happened when each part is working properly. So what is each part? That's each member. What, are, what, what does it mean that they're working properly? It means they're speaking. They're speaking the truth in love to one another. And as we do that, we grow up into Christ. So I, I can't think of a more helpful text in illustrating what it means for us as the body of Christ to help each other grow than Ephesians chapter 4. Pastors are given to equip the saints for this very task. So we all help each other grow. Pastors are called to help equip us to do that. So Philippians chapter 1 is our next text. We've got a few more that we're going to look at. Philippians chapter 1, if you'll turn over a couple pages in your Bible. Notice what Paul says here in Philippians 1. We'll start reading at verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in Christ or live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Context, Paul's in prison. He's not sure whether he's going to die or not. So he's saying, listen, if I live, which I hope, he's going to say in a few verses, I anticipate that I will. I think I'm going to get out of this one. But that, if I live, I'm going to, that means Christ is my life. Well, what does Christ being your life mean? Fruitful labor for me. What does fruitful labor mean? That's what we're going to talk about. Look at verse 23. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, that is, continue to live, and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. You see what he's doing? He's saying, okay, I want you to get this. Paul says, to live is Christ. That's, we know that phrase, to live is Christ. What does that mean? For Paul, it means fruitful labor. What does fruitful labor mean? The progress and joy of other people's faith. So in other words, the reason Paul says that I'm left on the earth is to help other people grow in Christ. That's the only reason I'm not being, getting killed in jail. You say, well, okay, yeah, part of that is because he's an apostle. For sure, right? But don't limit it to that. Because he says over and over again in his letters, he's trying to set an example for the believers right? Which we're going to look at in just a moment. But he's trying to set an example. So fruitful labor means a life that is given over to honor Christ by increasing his honor through my instrumentality in leading others to faith in Christ and growth in Christ-likeness. That is the progress and joy and joy of faith of others. So that's what it means to live for Christ. Colossians chapter 1. Next page. Colossians chapter 1 verses 28 and 29. Again, this is the Apostle Paul laying out what he says his ministry is all about. He says, Him we proclaim, that is Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. What is his life toil? Maturity in Christ of other people. How does he get there? By his energy working powerfully, that is God's energy powerfully working in him. But how does he do it practically? Right, The Holy Spirit is empowering him, but he's doing it by teaching and admonishing. That is, positive instruction, negative correction. Is that reserved for the apostle only? No, because in Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, he uses the same phrase to describe what the church is supposed to do. Look at Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That is the church. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. 
See, we're supposed to do that too. It's not just Paul. It's us teaching one another, helping one another. And one of the ways we do that, he says, is singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So when we show up in church on Sundays and we sing our hearts out to God, we're not, you're not just singing to God. You're singing to your brothers and sisters. And it's one of the ways you fulfill this command to disciple. You disciple other believers by singing the truth to them. Doesn't it do your heart good to hear other believers singing? Well, that's part of our discipling responsibility. We are discipling one another when we do that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18. Paul says again, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, I just want to make a comment. This is a famous funeral text. We read it at gravesides quite a bit, appropriately so, because it's a wonderful blessing and a reminder of our future hope. But notice what Paul says at the end of that instruction. Use that to encourage one another. He says, when you're sitting with a grieving person, you say that to them. You encourage one another. You remind each other of the future hope. It's a great blessing for us as pastors to hear those sorts of conversations when believers are encouraging one another with the truths of the Scripture, and not just the pastors, but all believers are doing it. Then Paul says something similar in 1 Thessalonians 5.11. He says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And then finally in chapter 5, verse 14, notice who he instructs. He says, And we urge you, brothers, that is Christians, church members, disciples, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. See, that's the church's job. The church, it doesn't say, And we urge you, pastors and deacons, admonish the idle. No, well, of course, pastors and deacons or pastors are supposed to do that, but it's the job of the church to admonish and encourage and help and be patient. So Paul democratizes discipling down to the church level as well. 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're almost done. 2 Timothy chapter 2, I just want you to appreciate how all over the New Testament this really is. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. See, older women, as a mature disciple in Christ, have a teaching responsibility in the church. That is, they are to teach what is good. That is, training younger women in Christlikeness. And men are to do something similar. Look at verses 6 and 7. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity. Paul anticipates young men teaching in the church. Does that mean all young men are preaching sermons? No, that's not what teaching means. Teaching means speaking the word of God to one another. So older men, younger men, younger women, older women, by implication, all have this teaching responsibility. doesn't mean all are teachers in a formal sense, but it does mean that all teach, all have this responsibility to communicate truth from God's word to other members of the body. Last couple passages in the book of Hebrews. First of all, chapter 3. Verse 13, familiar passage to many of us. But exhort one another every day, that is the body of Christ doing its responsibility, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So that's every church member, 
involved in exhortation every day to the church. And then uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 says, this is one of the main points of our gatherings is to do this very thing. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's it. New Testament survey of discipling in the local church. Now, I know that reading those passages and considering those things can be overwhelming, can be challenging. They're meant to be challenging. But I just want to conclude. We're going to talk about a culture of discipleship and what I mean by that in just a second. But let me just encourage you for a moment. You don't need to know everything. Okay, I think sometimes when we hear teaching, we think formal degrees and training. Like, I have to know all the answers. I don't know all the answers. In fact, one of the, one of the best things you can say is, I don't know, but let's figure, try to figure that out together. That'd be really good. See, what we're not trying to create is some sort of, like, mentor-apprentice model where there's the really spiritually mature and the really spiritually immature, and the spiritually immature are dependent on the really spiritually mature, and the spiritually immature help the spiritually immature grow. It's, it's, it's not that. It's not that vision at all. It's you don't need to know everything. You just need to know Jesus. And you don't need to be perfect. You just need to be progressing. People don't need your perfection. If you're perfect, you'd be in glory already. You'd be glorified. We don't need that. We need progressing, imperfect disciples. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, here's the sobering reality, is we're always discipling. We always are. We are communicating by our lives and by our words, our priorities all the time. We are discipling one another in something. And the question must become is, we need to have, make sure that we're discipling each other in the right things. So the question becomes, how can I intentionally help others follow Jesus? Remember, when Jesus left his command to us, it was go, go, make this, go do this. Going is intentional. We don't wait for it. You gotta initiate. Don't wait, initiate. You don't need permission in this church to influence people for Christ okay <laughs> nobody needs to get permission from anybody to influence people for christ for the glory of jesus you have commands from christ to do so you need no permission from leadership you've got your senior pastor's call who's jesus christ so how do we do this practically then how do we how do we flesh this out i want to conclude with some some illustrations here as we wrap up but let me, just, let me just throw this out as, a, as kind of a banner over all of this. Disciples are made by persevering proclamation of the word of God by the people of God in prayerful dependence on the spirit of God. That's how disciples are made. I'll read it one more time. They're made by persevering proclamation of the word of God by the people of God in prayerful dependence on the spirit of God. So you've got word, spirit, prayer, and people. That's how God works. Word, spirit, prayer, and people. That's how disciples are made. Proclamation, prayer, people, and perseverance. So, concluding now, what is a culture of discipleship? So we've looked at who is a disciple, what is discipling, what's a culture of discipleship? This is what we're after. And this is what I pray we'll pursue as a church together, not just in 2020, but as long as the Lord tarries or we remain on the earth. When the whole church, discipling the whole church, is normal. That's a culture of discipleship. When the whole church, discipling the whole church, is normal. 
when helping others follow Jesus permeates the church. That's a culture of discipleship. It's when every member says to every other member, your maturity is my responsibility. It's when every member says to every other member, your maturity is my responsibility. Listen, brothers and sisters, discipling is not another thing you do. It's how we do everything. Okay? So we're doing lots of stuff, good stuff. Men's ministries and women's ministries and kids' ministries and services and, and, and projects, all that stuff. Very good, great stuff. Need to keep doing it. But at the heart of all that is discipling, discipleship. It's not an additional thing. It's how we do everything. Everything we do has that as its ultimate goal, making and maturing people in Christ. It's not a program. It's not a curriculum. It's the normal way we live together as a church. And it's lived out in corporate and personal context. So let me give some illustrations. In the Great Commission, Jesus instructed his disciples to make disciples by baptizing and teaching everything that he has commanded. And the command to baptize means that the main context of discipleship is the local church. In a broad sense, discipleship happens in the life of the church as we worship and serve together. So here are a few examples of how we disciple one another in the context of the whole gathered church. First of all, right here, Sunday morning gatherings. We gather here every Lord's Day to encourage, exhort, edify one another, to hear from God. We sing wholeheartedly. We sing joyfully. We sing loudly. Pray fervently with the church. We come ready to hear from the word of God. We stay a while. We talk to each other. We get updates on each other's lives. That is critical. That is critical. Also, this is, and this is more evidence of things we're already doing to create this culture of discipleship. We attend classes together, prayer meetings, Lord's Supper gatherings. These are great opportunities to build more relationships in a context of teaching and prayer and singing. And uh, th that's why we have the gospel project so that families can involve themselves and bring their kids and use that as a platform to discuss and apply God's word in their homes. We pray we have prayer meetings, but we're also producing an H a new HBC directory in part to set it up as a tool to pray for each other, for each person in the church once a month. And if you don't know the person, you still pray for them. It's okay. You just pray the scripture that you read that day over them. I do that many times. I don't know what's going on in everybody's life individually. None of us can. But what we can do is pray God's word. Pray what you're reading on the scriptures from the scriptures that day over the members of the church. You could even send them an email or invite them to get together sometime, or you could text them or call them or, 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 or speak to them and, and tell them that you've been praying for them and ask how you could be praying for them more faithfully. It's a great way to disciple the church. Also, initiating hospitality, bringing others into your life, inviting a visitor, a new member, or a member that you don't know to get to know them better, to your home or out to a restaurant. Hospitality could also be initiating coffee or a lunch. Titus talks men's breakfast, all those are examples of hospitable environments that our church has that afford relationships to be developed for the purpose of discipleship. Also evangelism. We want to help people follow Jesus even if they don't know him. So look for ways to engage neighbors and co-workers and friends and family members with the gospel. We let others in the church know how we can pray for them. Um, we invite a non-Christian friend to your home for a meal or invite some others from church so that your worlds can kind of collide. I heard of someone recently who was inviting their physical therapist and his family to dinner and then asked their small group to be praying and to drop in so they could witness Christian community in action. That's a great vision. We can't do it by ourselves. We need each other. 
And then just the many, many ways that we serve each other in ministry. And this service in our church is not driven primarily by a desire to express our gifts. It's a desire to love and personally edify other Christians. So that's some corporate examples. Let's talk about some personal examples. While Jesus certainly drew large crowds into his ministry, he also focused his discipleship with a few. The relationships we build in broader context should move towards a focused discipleship with a few. In a focused sense, a culture of discipleship is marked by initiating intentional relationships centered around the word and prayer. This won't always be easy, but this is what gospel ministry is all about. And if you're not sure who to meet with or what to do, so you can get the ball rolling, there's lots of ways. We've got lots of on-ramps in the church for some of our newer members to get involved. For instance, small groups. Small groups are not intended to just be cul-de-sacs. They're intended to be on-ramps where we learn how to develop Christian disciplines together, the disciplines of love and hospitality and opening home and sharing meals. And It's just to develop that rhythm in our lives. And so that's one of the ways you can plug in and get to know people. Also, you can, do, you can invite three or four people of the same gender to join you in a formalized discipleship group. This might be driven more by location or work or subject or schedule. Pastor Keith has led one for years with the men in his company. And we've got lots of those going on in small pockets in our church. That is thrilling to us. We love hearing about those gatherings taking place where two or three or four different church members are getting together. I know of some women who are doing that, several groups of ladies and several groups of men who do that on a weekly basis based on schedules and things. We don't program it. We don't try to organize it because it can't be programmed and it can't be organized. It's the work of the Spirit in the body of Christ. You can start these on your own. Grace marriage is intended to be a forum where this happens where specifically marriage is the focus, but also you're working, discipling each other in your roles as husband and wife, and then the group is helping the group to do that. So that's another forum in which that happens. So the, the, they're, they're just examples. There are lots of ways that this can be multiplied. Let me give you some concrete illustrations of how this might look. For instance, meeting weekly to discuss the prior Sunday sermon or grabbing a book off the bookstall or a book of the Bible and or using the sermon application guide just to discuss that with another member of the church. It doesn't even have to be a, a, a person-to-person meeting, just a way of, con, of conversation, texting, phone, a phone call, or initiating a lunch or a breakfast at some point. If, if, if you don't know how to do this, I would recommend one-to-one Bible reading by David Helm. We will give that book to you. If you want to learn how to read the Bible with another person in the church, we will give you that book. It's a very small book, and it tells you exactly what to do. You can meet together with one other Christian on a weekly, bi-weekly basis and just read Scripture together, and that, that book will help you. If you want to, send me an email, text me. We'll get you a copy of that book. Also, you can attend the Gospel Project together, discuss specific application in one another's lives. You can have intentional spiritual conversations before or after church. You can accompany mothers with young children as they run errands, help dads with yard work and ask them for counsel, schedule play dates for kids, and talk about the Sunday night sermon. Have two or fr- uh, maybe two friends decide to read a chapter from the Gospel of John and then discuss it over coffee or a workout at the gym. Maybe two businessmen read a chapter each week from a Christian book and then talk about it on a Saturday walk through the neighborhood. Or maybe two couples do a night out together once a month and talk about what the Bible says about marriage. Or maybe an older godly woman has a single younger woman over to her home on Tuesday afternoon to pray and study a Christian biography. Or maybe a mom spends time at the park with other moms each week. Maybe friends go to a movie 
movie together and then grab ice cream afterwards and compare the movie's message with what the Bible says. Maybe a father and a son sit on the porch and reflect on God's glory being displayed in a sunset. Maybe you invite your visitors from church over for lunch and ask everyone how they came to know Jesus. Maybe you text others your morning Bible reading and specific applications and prayer. Give you a few more examples. These come from a book uh, called Trellis in the Vine, which captures an, an essence of a lot of this. Here's what Tony Payne shares. He says, Jeff is asked by his workmate Peter what he did on the weekend, and he replies that he heard an excellent sermon in church that helped him understand for the first time what was really wrong with the world. When Peter asks him to elaborate, Jeff explains why sin and God's judgment explain the problems in our world. Jeff continues to pray for Peter that these sorts of opportunities would continue and that Peter's heart would be softened to respond to the message. Sarah's teenage son is having real problems at high school, and as they talk about it at night, she reassures them that God is stronger and more faithful than any friend and prays with him. Bill is chatting to George after church and shares with him how encouraged he was by a particular verse in the Bible that day. Michael meets one-to-one every week over breakfast with his, with his friend Steve, who's a new Christian. Allison is worried about her friend Debbie, who struggles with anxiety and has been missing church quite a lot. Allison writes her a one-page letter offering encouragement, quoting a few Bible verses, and offering to get together to pray. Warren goes to a Bible study group each week at Jim's house with six other people. He makes sure that he has, that he has read and thought about the passage before he goes, and he prays that God will help him to stay, say true and encouraging things to the group. Irene is quite elderly and finds it hard to get out, but she phones her friend Jean every second day, talks to her about the Bible passage she has read that morning, and prays with her over the phone. Claire has been praying for her friend Shirley for months and finally invites her to an evangelistic evening that her church has been running. On the way home in the car, Claire talks to Shirley about the message and does her best to answer Shirley's questions. Trevor rearranges his work schedule so that he can take Wednesday morning off to teach scripture classes in his local primary school. He and his wife end up doing this for many years and have an enormous impact on the lives of kids and teachers at their local school. At Phil's church, they take a few minutes during the Sunday meeting for a congregational congregation member to give a testimony or to bring an encouraging word to the congregation. This Sunday, it's Phil turn, Phil's turn, and he tells how the teaching of Ephesians 5 has turned his marriage around. We could just multiply, multiply examples. And I don't want you to hear those examples as, okay, I'm doing that, I'm not doing that, I'm doing that. That's not the point, okay? It's not to get us to do everything, every member getting us to do everything on that list. That's not the point. But we cannot tell you as pastors how encouraging it is when we find out that a group of members are meeting together regularly to encourage one another spiritually. They're getting together to read a book or their sister's getting together weekly for accountability. But regardless of the format, some of our discipleship should involve scheduled times where we read, pray, confess, encourage, challenge each other, and a lot of them will be uh, unscheduled. But the question becomes, what are we doing that we can do to help other people in the church follow, follow Christ. Be creative, be consistent, be committed. Now, let me conclude with this. This is not just you doing this, okay? This is the whole church doing this, all right? This is the whole church discipling the whole church. So while it is true that a disciple of Jesus ought to help other people follow Jesus, we must always remember that apart from the sustaining and empowering grace of God, we can do nothing. So this is not about, okay, I'm going to work really hard at doing this. We will run out of gas by December 31st. Well, maybe January 15th. But we'll run out of gas really fast. 
So, and it's not the responsibility of everybody in the church to do all of these things, but what I'm calling you to do is to do something. Take a step. What is one way that God might be calling me to intentionally help other people follow Christ in this church? And pray about it and think about it. And God, I believe God the Holy Spirit will help you discern that. And, and remember that as you do it, you labor in Christ's strength. So let me just read you these precious promises from God's word in conclusion. John chapter 15, verse five. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. First Corinthians fifteen ten. I worked harder than all of them, Paul said. But nevertheless, it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. First Peter chapter four, verse 11. We serve the Lord by the strength that God supplies so that in everything God may get the glory. Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. I struggle, Paul says, with all his energy, which so powerfully works within me. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Before Paul tells Timothy, hey, invest in men who will invest in men, he says, son, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. There is so much grace and so much availability of the help of the Spirit for us to do this task. Remember, we do this task sandwiched between the two great promises of the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says, and I'm with you always, especially as you do this to the end of the age. So we do this believing that as we live for others, for their spiritual benefit, we are going to find our lives. You will find your life at the end of your lost life. And the way we lose our lives is by dependently resting on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and engaging in the work of creating a culture, creating and sustaining a culture of discipleship where the whole church is, is helping the whole church to grow to maturity in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for this church. We're grateful for the ways in which your spirit has been at work in us, many of us for decades upon decades upon decades, uh, to, to create in us a heart not just for ourselves, but for each other. We thank you for the innumerable ways in which that manifests itself in practical deeds of service and love and compassion and care for each other in the body of Christ. Thank you for each and every member, the ways they serve, the, way they, the ways they give, the ways they invest, the way they speak the truth and love to one another, the ways they pray for each other, the ways they sing to one another, the ways they seek to be a blessing and a help spiritually to one another. Bless all of our efforts in the year 2020 to foster and encourage and strengthen this culture in our church. We can't do this apart from you. This is not the work of any one person. It's the sovereign work of the Spirit of God. So Spirit of God, we recognize this and we depend upon you and we look to you to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, which is to orient us outward in love and care for one another in such a way that we are speaking the truth in love to one another so that the whole body can build itself up in love. Help us to be disciples who make disciples and the whole church being committed to, 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 to blessing and discipling the whole church into maturity in Christ. Move us forward step by step uh, according to your grace and by the power of your spirit in the new year ahead. We ask all this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.